Ford. Correct. Hi, Sarah Hoover. Welcome to Jerry Gagosian's AM Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, well, the last time we saw each other, the world was a little different, wasn't it? It really was. <laughs> it feels like a lifetime ago because um, it was at the Art Production Fund Gala where half of New York, I feel like, was out and about. Probably giving each other Corona. <laughs> yep. As it turns out. No, I have not heard a single report of someone from that event having Corona. So either yeah. we're statistically an anomaly or um, people don't like to admit when they have it. I don't know. Yeah, but I, I saw something on like Artnet today that, I mean, this is so ridiculous, but apparently people in the art world are trying to like track where they caught Corona from. Which so is like, 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 like they're like, they're like tracing it back to dinners and stuff, because I guess there's a bunch of people now in the art world that have it. And they're, I mean, it's so futile. Like, why would you want to try to figure out exactly where you got it? But I guess um, people are like pissed that they have it and they want to know who they got it from. Fascinating. Whoa. <laughs> I know. But, um. So like, uh, we're, I want to get into your sort of life story and how you came to art and um, how you feel about what you're doing and how you're impacted by everything these days. But before we get too far into that, um, I, you know, for our audience who doesn't know who Sarah is, Sarah is, are you a director or are you just an artist liaison and salesperson? What's your official title at Gugosian? We don't, I'm, I'm a director, but You're a director. you can call me anything you want. <laughs> I have no ego associated with the gallery hierarchy. That's, that's rare. Um, yeah. No, I'm, I'm just asking because uh, I was also today um, in the news media, people are recirculating Larry's memo from 2008 that said like, if you'd like to continue working at Gagosian, I suggest you start selling art. <laughs> mm-hmm. We're the fastest swimmers on the block. I'll never forget it. Oh my God. Did you get that memo? Of course. It went to everyone in the company. And Larry is, among many other things, an extremely articulate and very funny writer and speaker. He's like super efficient with words. Mm-hmm. I actually learned something Every time I hear him say like any sentence, if it's serious business or just a joke about um, how to get your meaning across in like the fewest possible words, just so succinct and so precise. Yeah, I'm definitely not good at that. <laughs> no, I love to talk, but like he just nails it every time. Yeah, I I I just started re like watching that show Succession like again mm-hmm. now during quarantine. And I feel like that sense of humor is the same sense of humor that kind of is in that memo. Like it's, it's the, like, who, who could we be if we didn't have to be polite all the time and we could just actually say what we mean? I'm like leaning towards it the older I get, like the, the closer I am 
to I was telling my I was telling my husband the other day like I'm so sick of being at a dinner party or an art world event where one of the people I'm seated with just like doesn't talk and I ask them 40 questions and they ask me zero questions and I think Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna start like kind of calling people out on it because maybe they don't know (laughs) maybe you could maybe there's like a polite way to be like well if you don't want to talk that's okay I'll speak to the person on my other side but like if you decide you want to be involved in conversation like feel free to tap me. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of down with the honesty thing. Yeah. I'm, I, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I got to be sort of honest on the internet for a while and now I'm, I'm like forced to own my words. Right. Like I'm like, Oh, okay. I, you can't be like the, the cool, like not, not that anyone thought I was cool, but like, you can't be the like rebel who's going on the internet and saying everything and then like show up in person and, and you're like this meek little mouse, you know? So I'm like, okay, I I have to like own it. I have to. I think you absolutely have to own it. I mean, I think it's like pretty hard in any arena to be a woman and be your authentic self and use your voice like Mm -hmm. across the board. And I think it's a pretty brave thing to do. But it's kind of the only option if you don't just, you know, want to live a life in shadow. Yeah, I'm. I'm. We're gonna get. We're gonna get to all this because I. I'm actually gonna ask your advice on a situation, um, in the episode because I want to know how you would deal with something that I'm experiencing right now. But okay. first, everyone has to get to know you. Um, and I was doing a little internet snooping, but would you? sort of lay it out for our audience like who you are how you came to art um the trajectory that your career's taken of course um well I grew up in Indiana and I moved to college I moved to New York for college I went to NYU as an undergrad and I didn't really grow up in a culture that spent a lot of time in art museums but my grandfather used to take me on the weekends to the Indianapolis Museum of Art and I had really fond memories of it from when I was a kid. And when I got to college, I decided to study art history, not really knowing that NYU has such a fine art history program. And I had incredible teachers there. Um, Robert Rosenblum was teaching at undergrads the my freshman year. So um, actually all four years. So I just had like this amazing experience and got totally sucked into the art world, but I didn't get particularly interested in contemporary art until later on. I, I got, um, master's degree from Columbia in cultural theory under Rosalind Krauss. And I was obviously had known her writing and her work and was super into her, but that was kind of as contemporary as I got was, you know, maybe like seventies, eighties. And then when I was still in school, but no longer taking classes, I'm crashed with a friend downtown in Chelsea, far West Chelsea. Um, And I started going into the galleries, which I had never really done because I was, you know, studying all the time and wasn't studying contemporary art and was spending most of my time in museums. And I had done the Metropolitan Museum intern program in the summers. And I kind of always figured I would go into academia or uh, work at the Met. But I was crashing on my friend's couch and I would walk around Chelsea all the time. And I was like, this just seems like a whole other art world. And I walked into Gagosian one day and I started talking to the girls at the front desk. And it turned out that 
an assistant there had quit that day. And um, they, there was a colleague standing at the front desk as well. And he asked if I could bring my resume in and come back. So I came back later that day for an interview and I got hired and I started immediately because the assistant who was leaving was leaving the next day. And so I only had like three hours to be trained. So it was kind of like total luck and being in the right place at the right time, which I think we've all realized is so much of everything, you know, and kind of fucked up because there are a lot of people who are, can't be in that place for one reason or another. So it was just total luck. And I loved it from the very first day for so many reasons, but and one kind of cool thing that happened is my my first full day at work, like the next day when I came in, um, I was assisting a, another sale, a salesperson at the gallery and they got a phone call and they were out to lunch. So I took the phone call and it was the person who is now my husband. Oh, okay. So I met him my first day of work. We didn't start dating for a couple of years, but we became friends really quickly. Um, so that's how I got to Gagosian and I was Mm -hmm. an assistant for a few years, which was, um, a mix of things, but something that was, I I think it's like very important to, um, to do assistant work because you really know how systems work. Mm -hmm. And I see people who come into the gallery, maybe later on in their careers or whatever, who skipped the assistant step for whatever reason. And they're kind of like incapacitated in a way. It's like nice to know what every sort type of colleague does at the gallery. And it helps you know who to ask for what and, you know, how things really work. And it helps you, I think, be more efficient. Um, And I don't know, I, there's like no task too small for anyone, you know, like if Larry asked me to change the toilet paper, I'd be happy to do it. So I also loved when I was an assistant, I feel like you bond with the other assistants your age and I made some of my very best friends in those years. And then I started selling art and it just kind of didn't make sense for me to be an assistant anymore because I was, you know, selling enough stuff to keep myself busy full time. So I moved into sales. But what I knew I really wanted to do was work with artists and help manage their careers. So a lot of what I do now is that. And, you know, all galleries are set up a little bit differently, but at Kagosian, you can do it all. You can do sales and manage artists. You don't have to pick one or the other. And another cool thing about it there is you can wear a lot of hats. Like, you know, you can kind of create the scenario you want. If you just go to Larry with a good idea, um, he'll kind of let you try things out. So I've done, I've worn a lot of hats there. I've, there were times where I planned events and I've written for the magazine. Um, it's like a pretty empowering way of working to know that your boss will kind of let you do anything that might be a good idea for the growth of the gallery. What, um, which artists do you work with? I work with, um, Vera Luter, who's a photographer, German photographer who's based here in New York and Ellen Gallagher, who's a painter, um, who lives and works in Rotterdam and in New York city and, uh, the painter Walton Ford. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. And um, what a, that's such a, like, a lot of people that listen to the podcast and a lot of people that follow my Instagram account, they're always like asking sort of how 
you get started, uh, how you start building a career, how you do things in the art world. And the, the thing that I always like to sort of encourage people to do is like, you have to just put yourself out there and actually it, it like your story is exactly like how I, even I got a job basically at Gagosian as well. Like it's that like willingness to sort of just follow your passion and your interest and you stay open at the same time. And then you ask like, Hey, can I help out here? Can I be a part of this? And yeah. The answer might totally. be no for a long time, like, or yeah. it might be a maybe for a long time. And then if it is where you're meant to be, you know, you, you will like find your way there. Like, I, I don't know if I've even told you this, um, but like, I, I was living in New York and I, you know, I'm not pedigreed in some of the more traditional ways that I think would be attractive to Gagosian Gallery as someone that like, you know, should be young and working there. And, but I heard that they were opening in San Francisco and I wanted to work there so bad that I literally moved to San Francisco because I knew, I knew that there was no, like, you know, San Francisco is such a weird town. And I, you know, Tom, you and Tom have spent time there and you know this, like, there's definitely an art world. There's definitely a scene, but it's not one that does that easily takes to like commercialization. And I knew that there would be a lot of people in SF that were like anxious about the presence of Gagosian. And I felt like, oh my God, no, no, no. I want to go. I want to be there so bad. And I um, got invited to the uh, opening after party and then there was like the after after party and it's like total social climbing but like I can admit it that I like went to all those things and started meeting all those people because I knew that that is exactly where I wanted to be and so then after like they opened and I think they were open for like a week or two you know, like any new gallery, they were working out the kinks of like, okay, this person's going to stay, this person's not going to stay. And there was an opening and it was like perfect timing. I reached out to Anna Gavazzi and was like, hey, um, are, are there any spots available? And they let me come as a intern. But then obviously, if you can sell art, or if you have a willingness to even put yourself in that arena, like, Larry will, you know, <laughs> will welcome that. And that's sort of, I wasn't there long. I was there for like five months. And, you know, I never formally had any other title than intern, but um, it was probably some of the more formative and most impactful uh, professional uh, lessons. It was like going to grad school or going to finishing school. I learned so much so fast. Yeah, it's boot camp. I mean, it's what you're saying is interesting and complicated because I think you're right. Like just getting your foot in the door is, you know, half the battle, but it's relatively easy for like two white chicks who are like, you know, for, for all purposes, pretty lucky to um, be able to do something like move to San Francisco or be crashing at a friend's place in Chelsea. And mm -hmm. I think it's a real barrier to entry for a lot of people that so much of getting a job in this world is about right place, right time, like looking a certain way, having certain, um, you know, professional attributes. 
And obviously that's a whole topic in and of itself and Mm -hmm. is kind of fucked up. But the reality and the truth of the matter is that you do have to kind of just show up. And I have a rule that um, I have always believed in that I think is very helpful to anyone trying to get a job, which is that anyone you work with, if you're an intern, it doesn't matter your role at the gallery, should walk away being able to say that they enjoyed their experience working with you and that you um, did everything you could to make it easy. Because, you know, you never know who Larry is going to call and say, hey, I know you worked on this project with Sarah Hoover. Should we hire her? And if that person, whoever that person is, can say, you know, it was a really short project. I don't have that much to say, but she was really solid. She always showed up. She always followed through. She made it easy for me. You want anyone to walk away with that experience, you know, and the mm-hmm. art world's small. And I think if you just um, like keep that in mind and try and do right by everybody all the time, like if you're lucky enough that you can be in the right place at the right time, things really come together for you. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. And you're right. There is a lot of, um, I don't know. It is, it's a combination of luck and privilege and, you know, in how a person negotiates all of those things at once. Um, But I'm very grateful for my short time there and as much as I'm like cheeky about it on the internet and I joke like you know I I did something that I can't believe I'm gonna admit this now because it's gonna go on the podcast and I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you this too but after I left Gagosian I actually went on to open my own gallery for two years and and I after I was open like a year and a half um like we were doing really good as like an emerging gallery and we were mm-hmm. this, the sales were pretty good. And I was just so proud of like the program and like what I was doing. And my business partner and I, we were talking because he was like, how did you know, like how to do certain things? And I was, I mean, I've, I've worked at like everything from artist run spaces all the way up to working at Gagosi in San Francisco. So I knew like, I had, I came with like a range of experience of what to do's and what not to do's, but most of the what to do's I learned from being at the gallery. And I, so I told my business partner that, and he goes, you should, he goes, you should reach out to him and let him know that because of what you learned, you went and you opened your own gallery and basically like write a thank you letter. And I was like, okay, (laughs) I wrote Larry a thank you letter. Nice. And I told him what we're doing. No, he never answered. And it was like, I was so embarrassed afterwards. I was like, I can't believe I did that. He'll never look at it. But I, I, I did that. I, I wrote him like you know what? a very earnest, a very sincere thank you. <laughs> I think that's sweet. And I don't know if he read it or not. I don't know if it made it to him. But you know what? Like no harm, no foul. It's not worst case scenario is like he thinks you're a nerd, but that's okay. I've done a version of that. I read a really cool article many years ago about Paula Cooper and I was so like inspired by her outlook. Mm-hmm. And I wrote her a note just saying like, oh my God, you're so cool. Like, you know, <laughs> art world badass. And of course, never got a response. I don't even know if I like told her who I was or left an address or anything. But I think like it's always good to you know, thank people and show you're gracious. That's all right. Anyway, so, you know, it's March 29th, Mm -hmm. Sunday. 
how it how is your life right now on March 29th, 2020? What is what does it look like? How's work? Like what are you feeling? What are you thinking? Well, I really truly cannot complain because I no one in my family is sick and I have a roof over my head and hot water and electricity and plenty of food. And um I feel really lucky for all of that because I know there are a lot of people, especially in New York, who are really suffering. So it's not that I can complain, but it is definitely a strange scenario, particularly when you compare it to the like decadence that we were experiencing just a couple of weeks ago at our production fund. Um, I mean, I'm currently in my bed where I'm doing most of my work and I don't have any <laughs> pants on. So <laughs> things are weird. And a lot of the shows that I've been working on are postponed because they were, you know, meant to open. I, there was a show at LACMA that I was working on that was meant to open um, two days ago. So oh. obviously a lot of things have been postponed and, you know, I think the pace has slowed down a little bit. It's not that people are not buying art. It's not that exhibitions aren't being planned um, for the future. It's just there isn't such an urgency to anything because so much is up in the air. And I have to say, like, I've actually kind of enjoyed that uh, opportunity to, like, reset and reprioritize a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that as well. Um, <laughs> this guy. So I'm I'm um, I'm in AA. I'm sober. And we've been mm -hmm. doing all of our AA meetings on Zoom. And it's weird when you're like talking to the group because I think that people forget like you're actually talking to real humans and this guy today like totally spiraled and like went on like a five minute monologue about how much he loves what how his life has changed because of COVID <laughs> and like how like at peace he is and that he could just go to AA meetings on Zoom all day and call his friends and talk to his mom and pet his dog and wear pajamas like he was he like totally spiraled and like, I mean it sounds track. like he's like he's pro-corona is what you're telling me <laughs> and I can't say that I'm that but I do think it is really cool to see that there is a way that you can be efficient and accomplish things at work, but also um, like not be miserable, you know, mm -hmm. and not be like always rushing to the next meeting and getting to the office. And like, I don't know. I mean, I think about this a lot, right? Because I know one of the things that you might want to talk about that we've talked about before is like how I feel politically about working in the art world, which, you know, is such an example of this like late capitalist world that we live in. and. Mm -hmm. I think in your normal everyday life, like everything's so pressurized and you're always rushing around and uh, success and happiness is so like linked in that system with constant growth, mm -hmm. like financial growth. And um, I don't necessarily know that like that's really what makes you happy at the end of the day. And I think, you know, this has kind of shown us all that success doesn't have to mean exponential growth at every second. It can just kind of mean like... Um, you know, maintaining a sustainable, lovely lifestyle. Yeah. So well, it's been an interesting check of all of our values for sure. Yeah. And you know, what's so interesting about that. I was talking to um, someone yesterday and he was telling me that his family had helped uh, 
start the school called Stadel Schule in Frankfurt. And mm-hmm. that school is like super known um, for like producing, you know, art world superstars, at least in Europe. Like it's kind of like, it's like going to Yale in Europe. Um, right. Like you'll come out of there and have like a, a, a gallery probably, or, you know, some shows yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And he was saying that in his opinion, the school wasn't good anymore and actually wasn't even producing superstars anymore. And I was like, well, why do you, you know, why do you think that is? And he was like, it became so much about like pumping them out one by one and speeding up that process and trying to Mm -hmm. make everybody a superstar all the time. He's like that it lost the magic. And um, I think that that's like a pretty real metaphor for like everyone right now. It's like we're all forced to, to re-examine our feelings, to make our actions count, to make our conversations count, to like find beauty in, um, in our everyday life and like to be more deliberate. Everything is a little less haphazard, like this whole like trend of like canceling on somebody via text like 10 minutes before you're gonna see them or do whatever like all that shit's falling to the wayside now and everything becomes more potent and and more local yeah it's kind of a great silver lining to a situation that's really sad for a lot of people you know but um i guess these are all ish- these are this is a, these are issues that would have been faced by all of us somehow mm-hmm. and like hopefully this is kind of a controllable situation that will allow a lot of people to see the world differently yeah um, i haven't been that. reading the news so this is actually just a sort of dumb question but what you're you're still in new york right mhm it is is it just like a ghost town there right now or what's it oh like? i'm actually i'm not in manhattan but it oh, okay. from my friends i'm in new york but not manhattan but my friends who um are in manhattan said it's yes bizarrely ghost townish and quiet and mm-hmm. i think everyone's kind of starting to go stir crazy i mean oh i expect my husband to go the full shining jack nicholson any moment now <laughs> yeah so what's it like um are you you know you and your husband are at home and how old is your son uh he's two and a half guy sacks is two and a half yeah so how is little guy taking this how is it for you like trying to work and being home now with a two and a half year old I mean god you know (laughs) it's a mixed bag because it obviously um makes me a lot slower than I normally would be to like attend to emails. I mean, I would never let an email go unanswered in my inbox for more than a few hours. Normally I'm really quick to respond at least to tell someone I'm working on something. And now it's more like a day or two because, um, you know, I don't have big, huge chunks of time where I can work. And when I do work, I'm really focused. I, I'm not, I'm, I can multitask, but I like to make sure that anything I put out into the world is, very thought through and that I've, Mm -hmm. you know, crossed all my T's and that takes a lot of time. So it's, I'm just slower to respond, but I also have to say like, it's such a blessing in a weird way. Like I'll never get to spend this much time with my kid and that's kind of wonderful. I mean, he's really cool. So 
it's not that bad and he doesn't judge me when I wear no pants so (laughs) and like lay in bed all day so um I'm kind of having a really nice time getting the opportunity to see him so much you know unfortunately in my normal life it's a huge trade-off but if you go to work every day for eight hours those are you know kids go to bed really early they're total nerds like he's asleep by seven so normally if I get home from the office at six or six thirty, I don't really get that much time with him yeah how do you I was gonna ask you and I I don't really know if this exists or if this is just like a myth in media but like normally because you're the director of like one of the biggest art galleries in the world like you and then your husband has like a very important and prolific art career like do you have work work life balance does work life balance exist is that real or is that just like something that people say in the media to be cute well my entire life is my work and so is my husband's, but it doesn't feel like work to us because we both love what we do, right? So like my husband says all the time that if making art were illegal and punishable by death, he would have to still do it. And I derive a lot of joy and empowerment and identity from the work that I do. So I prefer to think of, instead of work-life balance, I prefer to blend everything. I call it blending. And I feel like there's ways to always kind of be doing it all. Right. And I mean, Larry travels a lot, but I feel that no matter what time of day or night or where he is, if he calls me, I pick up the phone. And in exchange for that, if I need to leave the office to pick up my kid from school or take him to a doctor's appointment or whatever, um, I have the ability to do that in my schedule. And my husband, obviously, because he works for himself, can also do that in his schedule, which is like a massive privilege to have any sort of flexibility with a small child at home is amazing because it just allows you to be so much more present and available in their life. Um, Mm -hmm. But like what I thought you were going to say with this question is what is it like to be a mom who works, which I was kind of hoping you would ask me because... I think it's really interesting. Like no one ever asks dads, asks a father that, right? Yeah, I know, but that's actually why I, I, cause I wrote that down in the questions uh, that I sent over to you today and I had every intention to ask it. And then I kind of got nervous and asked it in a different way because. No, I I get it. And when I read it, obviously I know how thoughtful and progressive you are, but. The truth is, it is different for men and women. And it's not fair. It's not right. This just shows you how regressive home politics still are. It is, it the responsibility mostly falls to women. Even in my household with my like extremely wonderful, considerate, thoughtful, you know, forward thinking uh, husband, I'm still the one who's like organizing the babysitter and the schedules and whatever. So you're kind of, it's a, it's fucked up that that's a question you, you have to ask, but you're right in your original phrasing. Like it does really all fall to the mom. And I don't know if that's just because we're so much better at everything, but it can be oppressive to know that the running of your households um, is kind of, I think that women are just really trained, honestly, from a really young age to just take on so much and just figure it out. And yeah, that's just my reality. But I really consider 
that the secret to success is to love what you do so that when you're always doing what you would call work, it doesn't feel like work. It feels like something that you enjoy in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, by the way, I'm like extremely fortunate because I have a lot of help, a lot of female help, particularly. And um, I'm like, I couldn't do it without them. I mean, I couldn't work full time if I didn't have people who could take care of my kid as if they were me in my absence, you know? Yeah. What do you think? I didn't write this down in the questions, but this comes to mind now because you work with people that are, you know, I, I I sound like I'm such a nerd when I say this, like you work in the major leagues, right? So you're like working with like the best, the best salespeople, like the best art historians, the best curators, the best, you know, the best mm-hmm. institutions you're working with, like best, best, best. And I'm thinking about like, a lot of the sales teams that I know, especially at like mega galleries and blue chip galleries, most of the time it actually is they're they're helmed by women. And, you know, it's my opinion that women run the art world. Now, there there is a lot of misogyny in the art world as well. But like being who you are and your position in all of this, like, what do you think the difference between like being a female art dealer and kind of a boss and then being like a male, but in a male that's like the, in the counter position to you, like, do you think it's better to be a woman in these roles? Like what is your take on all that? Well, it's so complicated. And obviously because the art world is in the real world, there is rampant misogyny, just like, you know, in anything else you do. Um, I've extremely lucky because I've worked for a man for my entire career who um, has always treated me, you know, without any bias and he's incredibly results oriented. So if you're productive and you accomplish things, it, it doesn't seem to matter to him what your gender is. And Mm -hmm. that in itself has been a great experience. Of course, I have encountered rampant misogyny in 8 million other ways, not having to do particularly with Gagosian, you know, such as with collectors or artists or whatever. Um, And of course, I think there are pros and cons to being either gender, but Mm -hmm. it does seem very clear to me that you have to be so wonderful and perfect at everything you do as a woman Mm-hmm. to reach the same level of success that a man can being kind of mediocre. And I see that in the world all the time, not just the art world. Yeah. But I think it's a lot easier to climb the ranks kind of as a mm-hmm. man. Like you have to prove yourself less as a man, I have found. Yeah. And I have only anecdotal evidence for this, but it seems that every other woman I know who I've talked to about this, which is a lot because I've only want to talk about art gender politics stuff like that um it seems that we've all experienced that so it can't be totally false you know right and like I love being a woman and doing what I do um like almost all worlds it is kind of male dominated but there are so many examples of strong and incredible women in the art world which is so lucky. And I also think that being where I am and being a woman means that I can help other women um, who want to work in the art world and kind of like 
be a friend to them. And that's a really like lucky place to be, you know? Who are your three art world uh, female heroes? Oh my goodness. Well, I have so many. But, you get to pick um, three. Only three. Okay. Okay. Well. <laughs> pick wisely. I know, right? Well, we. if it's just gallerist, I think like Marion Goodman and Paula Cooper and Barbara Gladstone are mm-hmm. so amazing. And they have such like singular vision and they've accomplished so much and, you know, they're older so they did it at a time when it absolutely wasn't easy for them um but I of course there are so many female artists that I like have worshipped for so long like Barbara Kruger and Jenny Holzer and Lori Simmons Marilyn Minter Cecily Brown I mean they're leaders not only in the kind of work they make but in their thought process and in their politics and in how much they give back to the community of artists is just amazing. And I'm like so lucky because I actually know some of these people, you know, like I interact with them in my daily life, which is something that I don't think I could have ever imagined being a 13 year old in Indiana, that I would be like in, you know, almost daily conversation with some of these real thought leaders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my life right now is like a dream come true because I get to pick up the phone and call people who inspire me and have taught me and who, you know, even even people who maybe I didn't necessarily think that I liked, um, but I saw that they were doing things in the realm that I wanted to go into and um the process of humanizing that and getting to know some of these people that I look up to right now and learning like how they have done what they've done sort of step by step and what their feelings are on those things has also been really interesting. Like I was talking to Emmanuel Periton um, two days ago and he was like telling me what he's going through right now. And at a certain point, and I wasn't saying this to be sassy or like put him on the spot or whatever, but he was like talking and I was like practicing active listening. And at a certain point, I just interrupted him and I was like, Emmanuel, I do not envy being in your position. It sounds like it sucks right now because he's having to make tough situations and close his galleries and fire people, or not right. fire people, but lay people off and like yeah. decide what is going to get pushed to what date and what's quote unquote the most important thing and what do we save right now? And, you know, he got really exhausted in the middle of the conversation. He goes, I don't know, maybe I should just close all the galleries. Like he, oh my goodness. he's stressed out. And of course, I don't think he meant that, but you know, I think a lot of times, and um, because you know, we read like articles and books about all these different figures in in the art world, we forget that they're like people, and mm-hmm. that they have to that you know they that these are very real challenges, and um, and it's interesting because no one really has has the answer. That's the biggest thing I'm learning from curator to artist to art dealer to, you know, institution, um, technologists. I just interviewed the Winklevoss twins. I haven't released that uh, interview yet, but it's very interesting because even them, they're like billionaires, you know, and they're like, well, we don't really know exactly how to do this with the art world, but we're going to try. And I think that everyone... 
uh, no matter what level of attention they have trained on how to save this, save ourselves in this situation. Like we're all in this now. It's this COVID yeah. is the great equalizer in some yeah, kind of way. Totally. I don't know. But anyway, um, so you have, you said you've met some of your art, art world heroes in person. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about one of those experiences? Oh gosh, what would I, where would I even begin? Um, I have had really fun times with Cecily Brown, mm -hmm. whose work I have loved for so long. And I think she's the most incredible painter. And I've had really interesting conversation with her about, she's a mother. And I've had really interesting conversation with, uh, with her about being a woman and a mother in the art world um particularly because when she was pregnant she couldn't paint with some of the types of paint that she likes to use mm -hmm. and so she kind of had to change her practice which I think is just such an kind of inherent weird glass ceiling that you never think about you know mm -hmm. and it's just been very eye-opening to know these women that are you know a decade or more older than me and to hear about their experience of the art world and how it's changed. Um, another person that I've spent a lot of time with is the curator, Alison Gingeris, who's so smart and like wonderful and has always been such a good friend and role model to me. Um, I mean, the list goes on. There are so many women in the art world who have taken care of me through the years. And I love that like sense of community <coughs> And kind of bonding that you have with people, like sort of just because they're also women working in kind of a tough industry. Um, I have never, ever had an experience of a woman treating me badly in the art world. Really? I've all, never. Oh, I have. That's and good. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure I'm <laughs> just lucky for whatever reason. But I, um, I've, I have like very great relationships, which is it makes yeah. all the difference, you know? Yeah, the, the women that I had trouble with working in the art world were uh, women that felt like um, like we were in competition, you know. With yes, each other. and I think that that is like a kind of deeply ingrained patriarchal training for them, you know, and that's yeah. their kind of own <clears throat> intrinsic misogyny that they've just swallowed their entire lives there's an interesting wall street journal journal article about this a few years ago called queen bee syndrome that i'll send you mm -hmm. oh, but in reality like women who aren't nice to other women are suffering from you know the pernicious side effects of the patriarchy just like the rest of us they just haven't realized it yet yeah totally i i you know i've been naive because i grew up with a mom who's super feminist, but not feminist in the sense that it's even something, it's so ingrained in the way I was raised that I like, it never occurred to me that like women would ever be pitted against each other. And right. so it was, I was very naive. I was very wide eyed, like when I first came into the art world and I met certain people who it became clear 
down the road, like, oh, uh, like it was like a reality TV show. Like I'm not here to make friends and here to win kind of situation, you know? And I, and I, and I remember being shocked by that, but I will say I have also met on the other side. I have, I have met so many incredible, strong, talented women who, like you said, essentially have to make up for sometimes um, like I think that men can get lazy and they can get um, like hyper focused on things like the business side which women do too like women I most of my closest girlfriends are actually women art dealers but like um, like I've just known that some men they can get so focused on the like aggressive competitive sales side as well that like other things get lost and I've noticed that a lot of times it's women who do the hard work of connecting and reconnecting like you were saying earlier blending and making sure that this doesn't become all about business and it's not woo woo either it's it's something kind of um if it's done right, that is nicely blended where you don't overly focus on one part or the other. Yeah. And I mean, look, like we all know that the patriarchy is not good for anybody. It's bad for men, just like it's bad for women. And I think, you know, men have had the keys to the castle for a very long time and they've built this system that ultimately actually isn't good for them either because they, um, they've like built in, this idea that competitiveness and aggression um, equals manliness, but like, it's not fun for anybody. That's a waste of everyone's energy. And they're kind of victims to the same shit that we're victims of, of these ideas that aren't about treating each other well. And Mm -hmm. it's not the way it's not the, you know, business ethics that you or I kind of operate in, but like, a lot of people aren't aware that there's another way. Yeah. Yeah. And then there are so many, you know, that are these, um, some of these women that I've been interviewing, like Helen Molesworth and just, Oh, oh which was I'm, so, that was a good interview. I loved hearing. Oh my God. Her. She's super amazing. cool. But um, I want, if, if this is like horrible, you can tell me to cut this, but I'm still so inspired by part of your speech uh from the art production fund gala and can i can i read part of that on the podcast of course oh okay <laughs> i love this it. um and you know I, i'm gonna set the scene for everyone who wasn't there um so this gala was held at the seagram's video- building in new york and I think for me personally, it was probably the nicest party I've ever gone to in my life. Like the men were in tuxedos, the women were in beautiful gowns, like the champagne and martinis were flowing. Um, There were people auctioning artwork and there were celebrities there. And it was like, it was like the set of sort of a movie that I'd always you know, wanted to be inside of or something. It was like really pretty night. And uh, Sarah was the the host of the evening, right? And um, I guess- In a way, yes. Yeah, in a way. And you'd been doing some work with them, which I want you to talk about in a second. Um, but 
before the auction started, Sarah got up and she gave the speech. And, you know, there were some very powerful people in that room. And I feel like in those moments, a lot of times people hold back um, because they want to be polite, like kind of circling back to the beginning of our conversation. They want to be polite. They don't want to offend anyone. Um, And not only did you get up and give this speech, but you were a good sport and you made fun of yourself and you made fun of everybody in the room. Um, And it was awesome. And so I'm going to read um, just a a little piece of this. Go for it. I ad-libbed some of it, so um, do your best, me. Okay. Um, Okay. Mm -hmm. Hold on. Let me get my favorite paragraph here. Well, I love the beginning. Um, Okay, so Sarah says, But please know that my deeply embedded imposter syndrome caused by a lifetime of being gaslit by the patriarchy is absolutely raging as I stand here. I would not be surprised if one of you had taped a big note to my back saying fraud. In fact, I may have taped a note to my own back saying fraud. The imposter shit runs deep when you live in a culture that has historically treated your entire gender as inferior, you know? (laughs) I do (laughs) oh my god can you talk about that I was like I was shocked that you were up there saying that and not shocked because I'm so you know like I'm not conservative at all but I was shocked that you had the fucking nerve to get up in front of hundreds of you know people and talk like that people who were guilty of that basically right I didn't realize while I was speaking and I was so nervous because I don't do a lot of public speaking. My hands were shaking like little leaves. I don't know if you could see no, you where we were tell. sitting. But um, I I didn't notice when I was speaking. I was too in it. But I subsequently someone sent me a video that they took on their cell phone. And I realized that when I said that paragraph, people were literally cheering. So I don't think anyone was too offended by it. I mean, it's absolute reality that like many human adults suffer from imposter syndrome. But um, I mean, I'm sure there are statistics on this somewhere that we could look up, but I absolutely feel it as a woman. I feel like questioned about my expertise on things all the time. I mean, there's that incredible Rebecca Solnit essay where she invented the term mansplaining and she tells the story of how she was um, in a conversation with a man and he kind of questioned her as a writer and kept interrupting her and she couldn't get her point out, which was that she had actually written a book that he kept referencing as if she had never heard of it before. (laughs) And when her, I think her partner was standing there too. And when her partner finally interrupted and was like, dude, she wrote that book that you're talking about. He was like, Oh, I actually haven't read it. I just read a synopsis online. And like, we've all experienced that shit, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I just felt like, That night is so luxurious and it's so outrageous. Um, It's so beautiful, but like, it's just unreal to me that there are so many people in the world who just live like that all the time. Um, And then there are so many people in the world who are, you know, struggling in different ways, struggling to get their art projects made, tell their story and so on. Um, I just felt like 
it was the most kind of like authentic thing to do to speak my truth a little bit. And I don't have a huge platform a lot of the time and I'm not asked to speak publicly very often. So uh, it kind of felt like a moment where I could do that. And I mean, I certainly didn't mean to like offend anyone with any of the things that I said, but I did want to like speak really honestly. And uh, the thing that preceded what you read was that I made a joke that um, like I was sure that people were being like, who the hell is this girl and why is she being honored? Because, you know, it's not like I'm famous in any way. And that was something that like actually went through my head as when I found out that I was that, you know, when our production fund offered to honor me. And um, I don't know that men, a lot of men think that way. So it just felt like I, it was kind of my opportunity to say things that felt true to me. And um, when I watched the video that someone sent me, people laughed. So I think it was, it went over okay. Oh my God. Everybody at my table, we were like me, it was me and the two women who I just met like 20 minutes before we were like holding each other's hands. <laughs> Ah, that's a, my dream. How fabulous. Yeah. yeah. We, were like, we were like, oh my God. Like we both, like I was sitting in between both of them and we, I like, I thought I was fucking dreaming. I'm like, is she up here talking about getting gaslit by the patriarchy? Yeah, she fucking <laughs> and, was. And I like looked to my left and I looked to my right and we, we were all like, oh my God, she's going for it right now. And we like held each other's hands because we were like, oh my God, she's doing it. She's doing it. She's doing I it. I went in, but you know what? What really gave me a lot of the courage to do that is that when I looked out in that room, I saw so many women that have been so wonderful to me in my career in the art world and have been such good friends to me. And as I said later in my toast, like there were women out there who literally texted me while I was in labor. There were women out there who called me when I had crippling postpartum depression. There were women out there who were really nice to me when I was like in my twenties, constantly heartbroken over a boy and like had no money, you know, and was a tiny junior assistant at Gagosian and was nobody important. Not that I'm important now, but you know, was really nobody important then. And like looking out at that room and seeing how the art world does have so many incredible women that are the powerhouses behind it and seeing them sparkling, I was like, yeah, this is my time. I'm going to, I'm going to talk shit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for inviting me that night. It was so fun. I'm um, so glad you were there. What? Tell me a little bit about the the postpartum depression and and how did that like what happened? How did that affect you? And you you obviously bounced back relatively quickly. If guys two and a half, but can you speak a little bit about that experience? Yes, it was wild. I um I found that the cultural narrative around being a mom and pregnancy and labor and uh, be- becoming a mother was really different than my lived experience of all of those things. And I had all these expectations that, you know, anytime you hear about becoming a mom, you read about how, you know, that baby comes out and they put them on your body and you fall madly in love and it's hard and you're not sleeping and you're anxious, but you have this beautiful little creature that you just adore and it's all worthwhile. And that was not my reality at all. I was really sick the first 20 weeks I was pregnant, like puking all day and couldn't eat and couldn't go out to dinner with a friend or have lunch with a buddy. And I had no social life and I felt really lonely and really alone. Um, And then 
my pregnancy was a little, you know, there was nothing extreme or dramatic that happened during it, but being pregnant is really hard. It's there are, it's very special and it's kind of superhuman, but it's also a huge challenge and it's hard on your body and you're, you know, experiencing something that your husband can't understand and, or your partner, unless they've also had a baby. It's this universal thing. That's just so different for everyone. You really kind of feel alone during it. And then I found birth incredibly traumatic and nothing crazy or dangerous happened to me, but, um, everything about it was painful and scary. And, you know, it's the most dangerous day of your life and maternal health and statistics in America are abysmal, particularly for women of color, but truly for everyone, they're not good. And though I'm obviously really lucky to have like expensive private New York City healthcare and all of that, it still felt to me like, I mean, it's a system designed by men. And that felt pervasive to me in the entire experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in labor for a really long time. Yeah, it was painful. It was scary. I was by myself emotionally for a lot of it because there's no other way to do it. And then I had this baby and I like didn't feel any connection to him like I thought I was supposed to. And my body was super fucked up. And, um, you know, you're like, every hole is leaking something basically. Mm. And it was fucking gross. And no one told me that it was going to be like that. And, you know, like I took AP bio, I like read (laughs) the internet. I'm, Mm -hmm. I had a fancy doctor, like I'm not new here, but like, I didn't know half the shit that happens to you. And I go home with this baby that I like didn't really feel anything for. And then I was like expected to feed it only using my own body. I was like, are you kidding me? Like I've been violated so many ways in the last three days. Like this is the last thing I want to do is like put my body parts in this baby's mouth. Mm -hmm. And I found it really boring. Like I wanted to go back to work. I wanted my old identity. I didn't want to sit and like stare at a baby that didn't even know who I was and couldn't really see yet, you know? Mm -hmm. And no one else was saying those things. So I felt really alone in my feelings about them. Yeah. And how how long did you sort of feel that initial? Well, it's like strange because I think when you go through a sort of massive identity shift and a trauma like that, it takes a long time to kind of come to terms with what you've been through. Right. So like at first I was just sort of regurgitating these cultural narratives that we've all heard a million times. Like you know, when I've started kind of going to a party or seeing friends again, you know, um, six weeks into my maternity leave or whatever, um, people were saying, oh, how's the baby? And I'd go, oh my God, he's so sweet. He's so cute. And like, he wasn't cute. He looked like he went through a frozen yogurt machine. And <laughs> sure, he was sweet because he like couldn't do anything, but he wouldn't have been able to pick me out of the lineup, you know? And I didn't really mm-hmm. feel connected to him. And I felt like guilty about that. But in reality, I think that's the way a lot of women feel. Um, Mm -hmm. it was also, I wanted so badly to have my identity back and my identity as someone who works in art and works for Larry is so important to me. I went back to work three weeks postpartum. I had been working on a show, um, for like years, been putting together a show for a couple of years that was set to open three weeks after my due date. And I like got on a plane and went to LA for the opening and was there for a week. And I was a mess. Like I was wearing an adult diaper. Okay, at this opening, and like none of my clothes fit, and I didn't want to spend money on new clothes because I thought, oh, I won't be this size in two weeks. What's the point? And I was just a mess. And part of me thinks that going back to work early was very helpful because it um, made me understand that I still could have that identity and that I could be both things. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
the stress on your brain after you have a baby is like its own crazy thing. I mean, I found this baby brain, which there's not a lot of science behind this actually happening, but almost across the board, women um, attest to it. You you feel so foggy. I mean, it was hard for me to like make a to-do list or write an email. It was difficult for me to work. And I, after that opening, I came back to New York and I took some actual time off because I realized I wasn't really doing my best work. And of course the gallery allowed me time off anyway. Um, And I just like never got happy. Like I was just a hormonal, sad mess for 11 months and I got worse and worse and I had crippling anxiety. I had nightmares three or four times a night, every night where I watched my baby die. Um, So I wasn't spending a lot of time sleeping and it was like an alien invaded my brain. And um, I was like, not a good partner, not a good wife. I would go to my office every day and do my emails after my maternity leave. I would go in and I would just uh, take little five minute breaks to sit at my desk and cry about all sorts of triggers that uh, a rational person in a better brain space would not be so crippled by. But I, I fixated on death. I mean, I just couldn't even handle if someone said the word death, I'd go into my office, close the door and spiral about like my mom dying and cry for 30 minutes and, you know, not be able to stop. And it's in my mind, I, I said to myself, you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You got to fix this. Like women don't cry in public. This is, you're like being weak, get your shit together you got to perform the good little girl that you've been trained to perform since you were two years old. And I tried everything. I tried acupuncture and journaling and meditating and working out and uh, two different kinds of therapy and a life coach I found on Instagram. Like I did everything I could and I wasn't feeling better. And I was actually feeling worse and worse. Um, And I also kind of thought, well, maybe this is just what being a mom is. And maybe I'm just not cut out to be a mom. Like people always say it's hard and that you worry and you know that the level of worry you feel for a child is unlike anything else so like maybe that's just what i'm experiencing and maybe i'm just weak and not meant to do this so i didn't really think to myself oh you must have postpartum i thought to myself this is what being a mom is and you're really bad at it and it took me a long time it took me until i was like having actual suicidal thoughts to realize that like something mm-hmm. was not right at all yeah. Um, and I think that this is probably the reality for more people than we talk about and more people than who will admit to it for whatever reason. And I'm really determined to kind of change that dialogue, at least among the people that I talk to and be like very honest about what my experience was, because I have the feeling just from the women that I know in my life and the reaction I get when I tell a version of this story that like they've all felt the same way. And maybe worse, maybe a little bit better, but they're certainly not the, you know, Instagram mommy of the year. Mm -hmm. And what what kind of did, because you were doing all these things to work through it. uh, Ultimately, what was the sort of, did you go on medication or did you just go through it? No, I'm telling you, modern science is amazing. I thank God every day for antidepressants. I didn't take them for so long because I had this crazy stigma in my head about them, which I think is like inherently pretty misogynist. I mean, I hear people talk about 
antidepressants in this disparaging way all the time. Like, oh, she was crazy. I could tell she was on meds or whatever. I mean, I hear it come up in conversation all the time. And like at the end of the day, my brain wasn't making the right chemicals because I had been through this crazy hormonal shift and like I needed to use modern science to fix that. Um, and as soon as I started taking, I started taking like a very low dose of an antidepressant. I felt better in like a week. Like I felt like really? my old self. And what, I don't know what if were you I, taking. I started taking like five milligrams of Zoloft, like nothing. Mm-hmm. I think the standard dose of Zoloft is something like a hundred milligrams. Yeah. And I started taking nothing. And maybe it was a placebo effect. I don't know. But you know what? It worked. And yeah. um is that I a, just that's like an SSRI, right? A serotonin re no, like inhibitor. Yes, exactly. Like mm-hmm. I know vaguely the science of it. And yes, that is what it is. And I just can't advocate for it enough. Like I used to think that self-care meant like getting manicures and saving money to get my eyebrows done and I don't know, like buying new clothes. Mm-hmm. And I actually think it's just like addressing all of your medical and mental health issues head on and fixing them and like being vocal about it and you know, being authentic about what you need to do to be your best self. Like that's actually self-care. And I feel extremely lucky that I had the resources to do all of that in New York City because I'd probably be dead if I didn't. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I like, I cannot stand the like, oh, you know, I mean, yeah, a lot of things can help you. Um, do feel good, like getting your nails done or, you know, retail therapy or hanging out, you know, with your friends or whatever. But like, there's also the, the very hard work of real self-care and that's different for everyone. And you have to be brave enough to figure out what that is for yourself. Like for me, and I'm pretty open about this, um, in my, I'm becoming open about it on the podcast, but I'm open about it in my like everyday life, which is I'm, I'm sober and I go, you know, I'm, I'm in AA and I work the 12 steps and I have a spiritual program that I work and I have to do that because left to my own devices, like I, you know, the art world, especially like really breeds a place for people to abuse to abuse substances and for that to just actually be accepted as normal and a part of everyday life. And I mean, there were days when it would be like, I could easily drink six days a week because there was always something to go to, you know, and the habit got really bad and the depression and the anxiety for me that came with drinking alcohol were completely unmanageable. And, um, you know, there's stigma around that too. And it's funny because there's like stigma if you're a sober person, right? And then there's stigma if you're an active alcoholic. And so I- You can't win. Yeah. You you literally can't win. I And I realized that. And I just, I like, I can't, I can't play this game um, that I didn't sign up for. I'm not good at it. I don't know what I have to do to win. All I can do is like be myself and be loud about my story because I think it's um it's irrational to think that the world is going to change if you don't talk about what doesn't work for you. And just for me personally, I I'm sure there's um 
I'm sure there's a relative experience that you can speak to about um, being a sober person, but like, I didn't know so much of the things I discovered about pregnancy and having a baby and becoming a mother. And if I didn't know those things and they weren't taught to me in my life and in school or whatever, then how can I expect the average man to know them? Someone who will never go through them firsthand. And, you know, unfortunately, men make most of the like legislative legislative decisions in our country. And how can they be advocates for things like better maternal health care and, um, you know, maternal leave after you have a baby and all that kind of stuff if they don't know the truth because we're not really telling the truth. Mm-hmm. So I think that one thing I have learned from my experience is to be as vocal as you can be about things that you feel are like kind of unjust and unfair in the world because there's no way they're going to change otherwise. Unless they're just un- annoyed to, to death and, and, and are forced to empathize. I think yeah. that's, that's the thing is that getting people to like, listen and, and you're right. Like there's, there's so much, I, I really loved, um, is her name? I think her name is Allie Wong. Did you see her stand up yeah, on? Yeah, her stand up. Yes. Yeah, uh, Baby Cobra. Uh, I fucking love that. It was like really graphic. Like when she starts talking about like how like her <laughs> she is wearing an adult diaper and her ass is leaking this and her vagina is leaking that and her tits are leaking this and everything smells bad to her because like her hormones are out of whack and she feels anger and she feels rage. And like, I didn't know these things. And, you know, I, my mother had my little brother Leif when I was 10. And so I like saw sort of the process as like a semi-conscious sentient human myself. And then I've had girlfriend, I'm the godmother to a little boy. And a lot of my girlfriends have had kids now. And, and I, it wasn't until I watched Ali Wong's baby Cobra where I was like, Oh, like, Wow, it really fucks it's your body up, up, right? Like, yeah. it's not right that, that. I mean, how do you think every person on this planet got here? Like, yeah, some of that stuff's gross, but like, don't women deserve to know about it and be told about it and talk about it and have it normalized since it's a universal experience that goes along with our kind of ability to prolong the future of our species? Like, I think that if women were more honest about it, which I understand kind of puts the onus on them. But I think if the real authentic truth about what it can actually be like to be pregnant and have a baby and become a mom was out there more that uh, the act of doing it would be more respected and it would, would be treated better because it would be more clear what incredible lengths they go to. What, not that everything has to be translated back into business, but do you think that you've become a better business person because you've learned certain things through motherhood? I'm sure. I mean, I think I've become a better person and a more empathic and thoughtful person for sure. Um, And since a lot of work I do is like very social and built upon relationships, I think those are skills that actually matter. Um, I also, of course, feel an urgency to provide for my growing family. Um, So I feel I've always really enjoyed work, but I now feel um, 
it's a little more pressurized for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also, every mother will tell you this, I've become a lot more efficient and I've learned, um, I mean, there's a certain amount of procrastination that I think you really have to do to get things done in a weird way. Like there has to be, you know, a little bit of TV watching or book reading or random list making or cleaning or whatever to kind of like get you in the zone so you can be focused. Um, But I've learned how to kind of like streamline all of that so that I can get to work faster and be more efficient when I do work. And um, I think there's there in the, in the end, I had a very difficult year after I had my baby and I had a very difficult 10 months of being pregnant before I had my baby. But in the end, it has only brought joy and knowledge and wisdom into my life. And I, I can't imagine that that doesn't impact um, my success at work. Mm-hmm. And I also should tell you that I journaled every single day I had postpartum. And I didn't read my journals for a long time because I was kind of scared I would be triggered. But I started reading them last summer when I was on vacation. And I was like, wait, these are like really un- kind of entertaining because I was so angry and irrational and hormonal and crazy that it was like kind of outrageous. And I – turn them into a book. So Okay. Anyone, that's what I was going to ask you. Is that yeah, what the book if anyone, is? If anyone gives a shit about this story or thinks that um, they might have like a friend who's a new mom or something, I was very, very lonely and alone during my whole experience. And I want to do everything I can to make sure that even if like one woman, I mean, I literally feel like a moral imperative to tell my story so that I could make at least one person's life better. Yeah. So yes. Who knows when it's coming out because now we're in the time of Corona, but yeah, it's written. Well, that sounds amazing. And I'm going to probably read it and I have never had a kid, but I was going to say, you know, what book would be like, should be your follow-up book is the other thing you were just saying, which is how you've like streamlined your life for work. Like, I think that that would be an amazing book to read as well as somebody who like, you know, the audience, I'm sure they're going to like Google image you and look, look you up and stuff, but like, you're so gorgeous and so fashionable and you go to all these things and you travel and you, whatever you live this sort of fairy tale looking life, at least from the outside. I mean, you just shared all this shit. So I know your life isn't perfect, but you figured out how to manage a lot. And I'm like, I need to read that book that like teaches teaches you how to like because I'm just me I'm like alone I don't have a husband I don't have a baby I don't even have a dog and some days like I feel lost like in the middle of corona I have a hard time like self-starting sometimes through this I'm like oh I I get like lost in like technology loops where I'm like I check my Instagram then I check my email oh yeah you're not again text message you know of course you're not alone and like by the way so do I I just have really figured out what works for me. And like, I don't know if here's the place to talk about it. I don't know if this is interesting for other people. And we can certainly talk about it offline if that's better. Well, let me say this to anyone who's listening. If this is interesting to you, say so. And maybe we'll do a follow-up episode on this. But what were you going to say? I was just going to say, I have a sort of protocol of things that I have to do in my life that I have found make me able to be a lot more productive. And 
the days that I don't do any one of those things, I'm a little bit less productive and it's always a trade-off and I know that going in and it's taken me a while to figure out what those things are and in what order to do them and at what time of day. But there is there are tricks that you can do to like get yourself out of that Instagram K-hole and <laughs> um, to get you over like writer's block or any or your equivalent of that um, in what you do. And yeah, I've, I've, I'm lucky that I've been able to kind of figure some of those out. Okay. Well, I think that that would be, if we do another episode, I kind of want to, I want to talk about that. Cause like, I also want to, you know, it's looking like it's going to be a long haul with this COVID thing. And I think that productivity and mental health, like two things that we've touched on in this, um, I think over the coming weeks, like I really feel like this podcast is going to shift into conversations about that because we're going to have, like, it's still slightly novel that we're all trapped inside of our house right now, but that's going to wear off soon. And it's going to be like, how do we take care of ourselves and how do we get shit done with all of this stress and being trapped inside? Because I'm starting to get there with myself. I know. Seriously. Yeah, we're going to have to talk again. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I guess we'll end it here uh, for today. But thank you so much. Oh my much. God, do we have to? Like, I'm having so no. much fun. Well, we don't we don't have to, but we maybe we'll end it here and then um, we can pick back up um, in like a, a week or so. Or maybe we just do it every Sunday while we're trapped inside or something. Sounds really fun. <laughs> love it. Love chatting with you. And thanks yeah. for everything you shared about sobriety and all of that. It's um, super brave and amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I here, watch. We're going to get stuck talking for like five more minutes. I just want to say this because like you're talking about like how mental health gets stigmatized and there's like some sort of inherent misogyny that seems to be linked to that, to all of that as if taking care of like this soft organ that we have have has anything to do with what our gender is but like um you know yes people can some people are extremely unfortunate like they say in aa that some people cannot be cannot be helped and they say it's not usually even people that have like mental illness that can't be helped. It's people who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And honesty is like, for me, at least it's the most important thing. Um, And right now, like, as we all go through this, and as we're affected in different ways, like, that kind of is the whole reason for the podcast right now. Is like, I, I think that the more honest that we can all be about what this experience is like and how it's changing us in real time, um, hopefully, like, the healthier we'll be on the other end of it. Yeah, totally. We can all, like, take this time to, like, really do a lot of reflection. And just one last thing, something that's, like, very important to me, um, to my productivity is having quiet time where I can be like really silent and actually hear myself think. And like, we're all so busy normally in the art world that that's very impossible unless you build it in. So like, I know it's lonely. I mean, believe me, I, I have felt extreme loneliness in my life, but 
as much as you can like be with your thoughts and write them down or type them out or say them and record them or whatever, it's like so useful. And if you could, if anyone can use this time to do as much of that as possible, like it will never lead you astray. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing. This has been really, really useful. And yeah, let's do it. Let's do a little workshop in like a week. Can't like, wait. Oh my like, God. If, like if, if this isn't lifted, um, let's come back in a week and we'll, we'll come up with like, maybe we can give each other some challenges of like how, um, how to deal with this or how to think about it. And we'll come back and like share um, what we're doing in real time with people. I'm in. Perfect. Okay. Have a great rest of your night. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Bye. Bye.